You are listening to a message from Redemption Community Church, a life-giving church in Westchester County, New York. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or follow our messages online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the message. All right, well, good morning, church. How you doing this morning? You doing well? So good to be with you. Yes, welcome to all of you. I want to say a special welcome to our first-time guests, whether you're joining us here in person or if you're watching online. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the lead pastors here. We're so glad you're with us today. Church, would you help me welcome our first-time guests? Come on, put your hands together. So glad you're with us today. Welcome to all of you. So we're in week three of a teaching series called Summer Break. Are you having a good summer? How many of you enjoying summer? Hope you're having a good time. Anybody getting some beach days in? Enjoy some fireworks, some barbecues. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying it. We just got back from a couple of days of family vacation at the Jersey Shore. Had a fun time. And, you know, when I was on the beach, I was watching families interact, doing some people watching and, and watching how parents relate to kids. And it reminded me that kids go through phases, okay? You don't have to be a parent to resonate with this because we've all been kids before, but especially if you're a parent, you'll, you'll get this. But kids go through phases, like there's the no phase. You know, like when every time you ask them the question, the answer is no. You know, like you're trying to figure out what do you want for lunch? Like, do you want a hot dog? No. Do you want a hamburger? No. Do you want a turkey sandwich? No. Then you trick them. Do you want ice cream? No. Wait, yes. No, it's too late. It's too late. <laughs> then there's the I only want my mom phase. Come on, dads. Some of you dads, you can commiserate with me, right? Like no matter what you do, right, you try to give them the same level of care. But no, I only want mom, especially when they're really little. But I think my kids are still in this phase like now. And my kids are big. Like Amy leaves the house for like an hour to go to the grocery store. And my kids are like, hey, dad, where's mom? I'm like, she's at the grocery store. When's she going to be home? Like she's never coming back. Like in one hour? Like 10 minutes later, hey, dad, when's mom coming home? Didn't you say mom was coming home? I'm like, what am I, chop liver, Right? Like, where's mom, you know? I can't blame them. I'm 42 years old and I still want my mama. I understand. Then there's the I can do it all by myself phase. How many of you know this phase, right? I can dress myself. I can feed myself. Like, I can fix it. I remember my kids would be trying to fix, like, a, they'd be trying to fix, a, like, a broken toy or something. And I'd try to come up and help them. Like, no, I can do it all by myself. And I think this is the phase that we get stuck in as adults. I think this is the phase that we have the most trouble growing out of, the I can do it all by myself phase, right? Like I can make it, I can solve this problem, I can be successful all by myself. We love to celebrate stories of underdogs, don't we? How many of you love a good underdog story? We love stories of underdogs. We love stories of people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and did it all by myself. You know, one of, the, one of the cultural values that we have as Americans is what's known as rugged individualism. You know, people have studied us, right? Especially like Europeans have studied American culture and have tried to kind of distill what is it that's so unique about American culture. And one of the, one of the values that emerges is this idea of rugged individualism. I mean, after all, our history includes like cowboys and pioneers who went out and settled the Wild West. Our history includes stories of entrepreneurs who created great businesses against all odds and changed the world. Even in our most famous team sport, football, the quarterback can keep the football and score all by himself. Come on, give me the football. I'm just going to score all by myself. It's a very American thing to do. Rugged individualism. <laughs> we place a lot, of, a lot of value on this idea that we can succeed without anyone's help. But if COVID showed us anything, it's how much we actually need community, 
how much we need help from other people, right? Like maybe we're not as rugged or as individual as we thought we were. Maybe we weren't meant to do it all by ourselves. Maybe this whole idea of I can be successful all by myself isn't all that it's cracked up to be. We weren't meant to be completely self-reliant. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So we're in week three of this series called Summer Break, and we're talking about breaking up with bad theology. We're upgrading our theology, and each week we're looking at different phrases that Christians often say, phrases like, God won't give you more than you can handle. We talked about that in week one. Phrases like, everything happens for a reason. Well, it doesn't. And if you haven't been here for either of those weeks or you missed one of those messages, go back and listen to it on the podcast or watch on YouTube. But when people say phrases like this, they, they usually mean well, right? They usually mean well. They're trying to be helpful or encouraging. But the problem is most of these phrases, they're kind of half-truths. And they can really lead to wrong ideas about God, what he's like, how he wants us to think and act and live in this world as believers, as his followers. So today we're going to talk about this phrase. And you've probably heard it before. You ready? Here it is. God helps those who help themselves. How many of you recognize that one? How many of you have heard that one before? How many of you have said that one before? You don't have to put your hand up. God helps those who help themselves. Now, this statement is so well known in our culture that many people actually believe this phrase is in the Bible. In fact, uh, an organization called Barna that does research, it's a Christian research organization, they did some research and they found that seven out of 10 people in the U.S. actually thought that this was a verse from the Bible. In fact, 68% of the Christians that they surveyed thought that this was a verse from the Bible. But it's not in the Bible. You will not find this in the Bible. Does anybody know where this quote actually comes from? A little trivia little guessing game here today. Anybody want to know? Anybody know? It actually comes from one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin actually said this. This is a quote from his 1736 edition of his annual publication, Poor Richard's Almanac. Now, many of Ben Franklin's quotes have been passed down, and they still find their way into our language to this day. And this is one of his most famous statements. So here's the deal. Why do we want to say this? That's, that's the question. Like, what's the thought behind this when we say something like, God helps those who help themselves? Why is it that people want to say something like this? And I think there's a few reasons. The first one is this. I think we mistakenly think that we've made it all by ourselves. I think we mistakenly think that educationally and, and vocationally and financially, we've been successful all by ourselves. And I've said it before. I've said it just a few weeks ago that we're not as self-made as we think we are. Sometimes we forget but all the blessings God has given us, all the opportunity and the resources and the education and the open doors and the family support we got that helped us be successful. We're not as self-made as we think we are, but how easily we forget it, don't we? We forget it. And sometimes, I know you never do this, but I struggle every now and then. Sometimes it's easy to judge someone else who's in you know, less successful circumstances as you. It's easy to look at them and think if they had done things the way I did them, maybe they would be somewhere else in life. I, like I said, I know you guys would never do that. Me, I'm tempted to think that every now and then. I was at the Jersey Shore this past week and a lady walked up to me and asked me for $3.90 for a bus ticket to get on the bus. Isn't it easy, right, to meet somebody like that and think, what's wrong with you that you don't have 
and 90 cents. Like, what kind of decisions have you made? How have you handled your finances that you can't afford $3.90 to get on, on the bus? It's so easy to kind of just judge someone that way. I think another reason people might say something like God helps those who help themselves is it's really a good way to excuse ourselves from having to help people. How many of you have discovered that helping people is often inconvenient? Anybody? Oh, I know y'all have never tried to help anybody before because I don't see any hands going up. You will discover, as much as you're trying to be like Jesus, you will find that it is often inconvenient to help people. It just is. And I think sometimes in life, we kind of just want to go through life with blinders because we don't want to be bothered by people's needs. I think another reason that we might find ourselves saying this or thinking this is maybe out of frustration for lazy people who are taking advantage of the system. And I get that. That, that, can, be, that can be frustrating. But you know, if we're not careful, we can end up becoming jaded instead of compassionate. How many of you know that there is nowhere in Scripture that we're called to be jaded? How many of you know that we're called to be compassionate? <laughs> we're not called to be jaded. And so we have to be really careful with keeping our hearts compassionate. So no, this is not found in the Bible. But as I was thinking about it, I was like, well, what's the closest scripture, you know, in the Bible that maybe people would confuse with this idea? And uh, the only verse I could find in scripture that people might associate with this, this topic, this idea of God helps those who help themselves, comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to this church in Thessalonica. And here's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. How many of you have heard that scripture before? If you don't work, you don't eat. My dad used to quote that scripture to us when we were kids. He would be trying to inspire us, you know, to, to work around the house and say, if you don't work, you don't eat. I can still hear him saying that. And so here's what Paul is saying. He says, if you, if you don't work when you're capable of it, when you're mentally and physically capable of it, then you shouldn't eat. Basically, Paul is communicating the idea that a good work ethic is a, is a God-honoring quality. How many of you know that's true? How many of you know it is immoral if you, to take advantage of the system? If you're able to work, if you're able to contribute to society, but you don't contribute and you only take, that, that's not right. And so Paul's saying that a good work ethic is a God-honoring thing. So it's important to remember who Paul is actually talking about in this, in this situation. Who is he describing in this context? Well, Paul was talking about some people in the Thessalonian church, in the Thessalonian community who were idle and they were divisive and they were disruptive. These were people who were capable of working, but they were taking advantage of the system. How many of you know there's always going to be people who take advantage of the system? Times don't change much, okay? So Paul is not talking about people who are in genuine need. In fact, here's how we know. Paul takes up a collection for some believers, some Jewish believers who were living in Jerusalem, who were experiencing difficult times. They were impoverished due to a famine. And in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, he writes to the churches and talks about a collection that he was raising from all of the Gentile churches to bless these impoverished believers in Jerusalem. And guess what? You can read this for yourself in Galatians and 1 Corinthians. There is nowhere in Paul's writings where he says, it's okay if you don't feel like being generous, here's option B. God helps those who help themselves. You won't find that. You will not find that anywhere in Paul's writings. You won't find that in the New Testament. You won't find that in the Old Testament because God's mandate throughout Scripture is not a self-help 
theology. It's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps theology. It's not a you against all odds by yourself. It's not a very American theology, to be honest with you. In fact, there are over 2,000 scriptures in the Bible about justice for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. This is obviously something that God cares about. How many of you know if there's over 2,000 scriptures, we should sit up and pay attention? We should take note of this. This is obviously something that God is passionate about. And so what does the Bible say about this? If it doesn't say God helps those who help themselves, what, what, does, what does the Bible actually say about this? Well, we don't have time to look at all 2,000 scriptures, but let me show you one from the Old Testament. This comes from Proverbs chapter 31. Now, how many of you know that Proverbs is a wisdom book, right? This is a book to help us live wisely. Think about that. God says if you want to live wisely, this is what it looks like. And here's one of the scriptures he gives us. Proverbs 31, verses 8 through 9. Here's what the writer of Proverbs says. He says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That's what scripture says. A couple of things here. First of all, God is calling his people to speak up. Come on, everybody say, speak up. God's calling us to speak up. We're called to be a voice for the voiceless. You know, when I read the scripture, it was funny. I, I don't know why this came to mind. This has nothing to do with the Greek or any commentary I read. I thought of the phrase stick up when I read speak up, like stick up for someone. You know what I'm talking about? Like to stick up, like to have someone's back. I don't, I don't know why this popped in my head. I, I'm, I'm one of four boys. I had three brothers, two older brothers and one younger brother. And like most, you know, brothers, we fought like cats and dogs, right? But if anybody messed with the Ziegler boys, we circled the, the wagons and stuck up for each other, you know? I mean, we grew up on the street playing a lot of football and basketball, and we had some rowdy boys in the neighborhood. So there were some opportunities, you know, for some scuffles to happen every now and then. And if anybody messed with my little brother, they knew they were going to get all 75 pounds of this scrappy white boy right here, Okay. <laughs> And if anybody messed with me, they knew they were going to get a piece of my older brother. Like, we stuck up for each other. You know what I'm saying? And I think God is saying to us, like, I want you to stick up for the ones I care about. I want you to have the backs of those who, who don't have anybody to stick up for them. Like, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the marginalized, the forgotten. Like, I want you to, to have their back because those are the ones that I care about. Those are the ones that I'm looking after. I'm calling you to speak up. And then the other phrase is, is judge Fairly. Come on, everybody say, judge fairly. God is also calling us to judge fairly. What does that mean? Well, this means when we look at someone, someone's situation, someone's circumstances, it's, it's, to, it's to not just judge on the surface what we see. Isn't it so easy to do that? Just to look at somebody and just size them up so quickly. Somebody walking up to you asking for money for a handout, for a ticket for the, uh, to get on the bus. Like, not just to look at them and just judge them on the surface level, but to understand that there are factors affecting their lives that are perhaps beyond their control, that maybe you don't know all of their story, right? It's to judge fairly, to judge compassionately, because both success and struggle are often tied to opportunity. How many of you know that's true? Often, whether you become successful or whether you end up struggling in life, has a lot to do with things that are beyond your control, like opportunity. Um, one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote a book called Outliers. And it's a book all about success. It's, it's, he studies successful people, these outliers, people who are kind of wildly successful in, in different spheres. 
And the interesting thing that Malcolm Gladwell does, and this is what makes him a brilliant writer, he has a way of coming at things from a different angle. He basically says, you know, so often we study those people, like their talents and their abilities. And, and he said, but what we ought to do is study where they come from. Like we should look at their circumstances, who they were born to, where they grew up, what was the time, what was the generation, what was the context of their life. Because often when you study their circumstances, you, you discover much of why they became a success. It's a really brilliant book, great book if you haven't read it before. And he talks about how many of the advantages that make a person successful in life are often accumulated that we accumulate opportunities throughout, throughout life that help us to become successful. And he says this, those who are successful are most likely to be given the kinds of special opportunities that lead to further success. That oftentimes, opportunity after opportunity is what builds to success. And then he gives an example, okay? So for example, uh, he mentions a study of how, uh, how someone becomes an all-star hockey player in Canada, the nation that is most known for hockey. Now, when I think about how would someone become an all-star hockey player, I start to think, well, okay, obviously they have some good athletic genes, right? Some good athletic DNA, and, and uh, maybe so they started playing hockey from a young age, and, and maybe they became an all-star because they had access to the best coaches, the best facilities, and they put in a lot of time practicing, and probably all of those things are important. But guess what Malcolm Gladwell found in his research? He found that 40% of all all-star hockey players on the best teams were born between the months of January, February, and March. Who would have thought? 40%. And then as you look at the, the calendar months, as the year goes on, the percentage gets smaller and smaller as the year progresses. That 40% of all star players were born between January, February, and March. And I know what you're thinking right now. You want to know, why is that, Pastor? Well, that's because the eligibility cutoff for age class hockey in Canada is January 1st. So a boy who turns 10 years old on January 2nd, right, could be playing hockey alongside another boy who doesn't turn 10 until the end of the year, like December. How many of you know at that age, as a young boy is developing, to have an 11-month advantage on another boy is a significant physical development advantage? And that is the whole point, right? That is the whole point. Simply because of when these hockey players were born, they have an advantage. Now, that's just one example from the book. He goes on to show all kind of other, other factors that set people up for success or cause them to have struggle. Now, if that's true for hockey, how much more might other outliers affect someone's chance for success? For example, how might mental illness or race or socioeconomic status or the presence of a father in the family, how might those factors affect someone's opportunity for success? Can I give you some examples today? According to a 2015 assessment by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, 25% of the homeless population suffers from mental illness. 25%. You think that might have some effect on someone ended up on the streets? 25%. In a 2002 Department of Justice survey on the incarcerated, 39% of inmates had previously lived in mother-only households. That means almost 40% of people in this, in this study who were incarcerated didn't have a dad. And I'll just tell you, there's a slew of other data surrounding this whole thing of fatherlessness and how it affects people, and, 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 there's, and there's a lot of negative data around that. So it makes a huge impact on a young person's upbringing. According to several sources, approximately 80% of people involved in prostitution were sexually assaulted as children. You think that might cause you to have a little more compassion 
or to see somebody different who's out working the corner to know that 80% of people who are involved in prostitution were sexually assaulted as, as a child. See, when we recognize that these factors affect people's life, affect people's chances for success, this is, this is judging fairly. This is what the scripture is talking about. To look at someone's situation, to understand the fallen condition of our world, to understand the brokenness of our world, to look at somebody's story and to recognize that they may have had a lack of opportunities, that there may have been forces outside of their control. It's to look at someone with compassion. That's what it is to judge fairly. I'll never forget in the wake of the George Floyd murder, reading a Wall Street Journal article about his life, uh, about the life of, of George Floyd. And it describes so many of the difficulties and lack of opportunities he, he experienced. And so many of them are indicative of young black men in the inner city, fatherlessness and poverty and, and lack of opportunities. George Floyd was raised in the third ward of Houston, which is a notoriously impoverished neighborhood. He grew up in the projects surrounded by violence and drugs, and he didn't have a father present. And he was a very good athlete who tried to make it that way, but he didn't have the academic support around him to get very Far and, and I'm not trying to cover over some of the mistakes he's made because he made because if you read his biography, you'll discover those as well. But let me tell you what hit me as I read his story. I recognized that his murder wasn't just a tragedy. In many ways, his, his life story was a tragedy as well. What hit me as I read George Floyd's story is how different it was than mine how different it was in my experience with all of the opportunities I had, with all of the love and support that I had growing up. You see, what happens is when you enter into someone's story, it causes you to have a different perspective. When you enter into someone's story, it's an opportunity for you to grow your perspective and to grow your compassion. And that's what happened for me. Just a few weeks ago, I was talking to one of my pastor friends who's a pastor in Philadelphia. His name's Randy. And he was telling me that, him and his wife, they're in the process of fostering two undocumented boys from Honduras. And he told me that their, their, parents, um, their parents are actually seeking political asylum in the U.S. They used to work in the government in Honduras, and now there's been actual threats of violence on their life with the present government regime. And, and you know what hit me? It hit me that as a parent, I would do whatever I could to protect my kids, and that's exactly what these parents did. They, they brought their kids into this country because they were seeking asylum because they had threats on their very lives. And think about as a parent, like, who wouldn't do what you could to protect your kids? And I think sometimes we oversimplify things like immigration. You know, people say, well, we've got to just stop all these people from coming over here. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to articulate policy right now. I'm not trying to get into the politics of it. My whole point is when you enter into someone's story, it changes your perspective. And as I was talking to my friend Randy, this is the very thing he was saying because by the way, he's actually pretty conservative. Neither one of us thinks that we should just have open borders, but he was saying, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the division, but, but God was calling me and my wife to do something about this. Can I tell you, it challenged me and it encouraged me because he could be on social media ranting about the border crisis, but instead he's doing something about it. He's opened his home to these two boys in the midst of inflation on a pastor's salary. He's taken these two boys in. And I tell you, I was, I was challenged by that. Just the other day, I talked to my pastor friend Chris from Baltimore and him and his wife, Lori, they're about to adopt a newborn. He's like my age. Like they have grown kids. And, and just a few years ago, God put on their heart, their heart to adopt a, a child. And, and uh, they've stayed in touch with the birth mother of this one child, a young, a young child that they already have that they've adopted. And uh, the, birth, the, the birth mother just gave birth to another child. And she's on difficult times right now. 
And they just asked her, like, do you need someone to take care of the baby while you get on your feet? Here we are, think about this, in the post-Roe v. Wade era where people are fighting on social media and, and so many Christians are saying, it's time for the church to step up and care for women in crisis and adopt babies. And how many of you know a whole lot of people can post about it, but they're not going to do a whole lot about it. And here's my friend Chris stepping up to take a newborn baby into his house. Man, that convicted me. I told him, I said, man, you're my hero. It's so easy to just post about these things on social media, but, but they're doing it. Here's the point, church. No, God doesn't just help those who help themselves. What does Scripture teach us? Scripture teaches us that God helps us who cannot help themselves, and he most often helps them through his people. That's the point. That's the point today. Come on, let's upgrade our theology. Yeah, I wish somebody would help me preach today. Let's upgrade our theology. It's so easy, oh, God helps those who help themselves. No, no, God often helps those who cannot help themselves, and he often does it through his people. And how do I know this is true? Because that's what Jesus did for me. He helped me when I could not help myself. Come on, he helped me when I was lost in my sins. He served me when I least deserved it. Come on, he served me in the midst of my brokenness, my sin, my shame. That's what he did for you and for me. Let me show you a scripture, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Look at this first verse, verse 16. Here's what the apostle John said. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us, so we ought also to give our lives for our brothers and sisters. Here's what John says. We know what love looks like because Jesus demonstrated it for us, right? He showed us what real self-sacrificial love looks like because he gave his life for us. So we ought also, in the same spirit of Jesus, be able to serve others, give of ourselves to others. Look at verse 17. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's not merely post about it on social media, what we should be doing. Let us show the truth by our actions. Why? Because this is what Jesus did for us. Jesus showed us what love looked like. He put love into, into action. He demonstrated it. Now, I am not saying, I don't believe the Apostle John is saying that you can solve everybody's problems. I don't think the Apostle John is saying that you can be Captain America and every time you walk past some bum on the street, you know, in Times Square, that you can just fix all of their problems. I'm not, I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's saying. I, I think he's saying that love looks like something. Love looks like something. We can't do everything, but we can all do something. See, as I've said before, even, even in the church, we have to discern how to help people. I mean, we get hit up all, all the time, right? Like we could, we could drain the church's bank account helping every person who comes through. Oftentimes, I have to discern how to help people. You know, sometimes people reach out to me and they have 20 years worth of problems and they want me to fix it in five minutes with one prayer and pay this bill. <laughs> and it's like, well, hold on, slow down now. There's 20 years of problems here. I can't solve this all in, in five minutes. So we have to use discernment. I'm not saying you can, you can solve every problem around you, but we can all do something. We all have a sphere of influence, we all have a sphere of family and friends and coworkers and people that God has placed in, in our path. And the Apostle John is saying to us that love looks like something. And we want to know what it looks like. We look at the very person and the ministry and the example of Jesus Christ. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And when you do something, it's the evidence that Jesus is alive. In an unbelieving world, when they see us step up and love and meet a need with no strings attached, that is the evidence that Jesus is alive. And when we do less of that, there's less evidence of the love of God in this world. Do you get it? 
That's what he's saying. Love looks like something. And so this is why as a church, we partner with organizations that are not only meeting people's spiritual needs, but people's physical needs. This is why we partner with organizations like Caritas here in Port Chester who are helping people who are facing food insecurity. We're helping feed our hungry neighbors. This is why many of us sponsor a child in Honduras through our partnership with, with one child that's helping get kids out of the, break kids loose from the cycle of poverty, right? By clothing them and providing for their education and medical needs. And of course, also teaching them about Jesus, how to follow Jesus. This is why last Christmas, we wrote a check for $15,000 to help Afghan refugees. Can you imagine having to leave your country on short notice because your life could be threatened. All you have is the clothes on your back and whatever you could fit into a bag. And you show up in Westchester County in this foreign culture not knowing anything. you got to start your life all over again. You were able to love on those people and say, politics aside, we're going to welcome you and just love you. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. Like This is why... This is why we do those things, not because we're trying to be good citizens. No, no, because this is what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. No, no, God doesn't just help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves, and he often does that through his people, through you and through me, because love looks like something. And we have the opportunity to show some love this coming Saturday for for Serve Day. Come on, this is the heartbeat of, of our church. We have some, some great projects where we can put the message into practice. We're going to pack 10,000 meals for Ukrainian refugees. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be awesome. All hands on deck. We're going to pack some, some backpacks full of school supplies for families who are in need. we got some, some fun projects just to love on people. We're, Pastor Dave had a great idea. We're going to go downstairs to the laundromat down here in our block, and we're going to just pay for people's laundry for a couple hours just to say, hey, we're the church of Jesus Christ. We're here to love on you and bless you. We're going to go to some business up, up and down Main Street and offer to wash people's windows and we're going to spruce up some community gardens. And let me tell you, man, for the people who rely on those community gardens, if you've ever worked the gardens before, they'll come up to you and they'll thank you. It means so much to them. We're going to just love on people in practical ways. And so we have the opportunity to put the message into practice. For those of you who have never served with us on Serve Day, check out this video. Love it, love it, love it, love it. This is what we're all about in our church. This is our heart. Like we're called to serve. And so I want to invite you to get involved. If you're newer to our church and you've never jumped into one of our serve events before, man, get signed up today. We're going to have the opportunity to put love into action. You can get your, your blue shirt after the service and you can get signed up 
for a project. We're going to help you do that and talk about that at the end of the service. Let me just encourage you too, especially if you're a family and you want to teach your kids to serve, one of the best things you can do is bring your kids with you to, to, to serve day and let them learn the joy of serving others. One of, one of my great joys is watching my kids be around for all of the serve projects that we do. So we've got some family-friendly projects, but I, I want you to stop and get this for a moment, okay? I want, you to, I want you to get this. Sometimes I like to follow, follow through like what it's like to be on the receiving end of being served. I want you to get this. Think about this, some, some Ukrainian refugees who have been displaced by this war, you know, living in, in Poland, having their lives turned upside down. Like at some point then they're gonna sit down to enjoy a meal that like we, we got to pack and send over to them. Stop and think about that for a moment. Can I just tell you, I've been on the receiving end of, of that kind of relief before. Amy and I, we, we lived through Hurricane Katrina back in 2005 in my hometown of New Orleans. We were pastoring alongside my dad during that time. And I'll never forget serving people for about a month. We just served people every day. And, and, and my hometown, streets that I know where I grew up were flooded. People's houses were underwater. And I'll never forget being able to serve people who, who only had the shirt on their back literally just the shirt on the back and had nothing. And I'll never forget the trucks of food that would just pull up and just from places all over the country and people just in some town in the Midwest who wanted to show love just, just packed a, a truck and sent it down. And being on the receiving end of that, how humbling that was, the blessing that that was. Think about this for a moment. Something as simple as packing up a backpack with school supplies. You might think, well, what difference does that make in someone's life? But think about a family that's struggling to make ends meet, it's one less thing that they have to stress about. One less thing that you have to worry about. How many of you parents know school supplies are expensive these days, right? To be a parent who's struggling and to know that somebody out there cared about your kid enough to buy them a backpack full of school supplies, just one, one less thing for family to worry about, right? Somebody out on the street, you know, we, we, have, we have a team called Love Porchester. We just go out on the street and just do just, just different random acts of, of kindness, just to love on somebody with no strings attached. Come on, how many of you know the world needs more of that right now? How many of you know right now in the broken condition that our world is in, the divisive world that we're living in right now needs more, more of that? And so I, I really believe we need this more than ever before. Let me tell you this, in, in a world where Christian values seem more out of sync with the prevailing culture than ever before, in a world where our message and our influence is waning. I can just say as a pastor, like if I go on social media and I post something, it's not like all my unchurched friends are like, oh my gosh, he's a pastor. We should sit up and listen to what he has to say. Heck, half the time my church people don't listen to what I have to say on social media. Some of y'all come up to me after preaching on a Sunday and you tell me what you heard me say in the sermon. And I think to myself, I didn't say that. <laughs> what did you hear me preach? <laughs> Sometimes I think people hear what they wanted to hear. I'm like, were you listening to the same sermon? In a world where, where we don't have the, the level of influence that the church had a generation ago, how many of you know we have to serve our way into influence? We have to serve our way in, into influence. The way to get people's attention is not to, to shout at them like the guy in the megaphone preaching to people in the subway. No, no, no. The way to, to, to gain influence in this culture is to serve our way into relevance. Because how many of you know that one of the things that still gets people's attention is when we love someone with no strings attached? That gets people's attention. That makes an impact on people. And can I just encourage you today? This is exactly what the early church did. See, sometimes we have to look backwards to look forward. 
I know sometimes it, it can feel so overwhelming, you know, the season of, of life this, that we're living in right now as our world is still recovering from this pandemic and there's so many eco- economic challenges and inflation on the rise and, and so much heartbreak in our country right now, the, the division in our country and mass shootings and all these problems that we can't seem to solve. And, and here we are as the church of Jesus Christ, right? It can feel like, man, what an overwhelming task we have to bring the gospel to the world that we're living in. But I want you to get this. The very first Christians, they were living during the Roman Empire. They were living during the, the, like the ruthless reign of the Roman Empire. I mean, the, the morality of the Roman Empire, the immorality of the Roman Empire, it makes our culture look like a bunch of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. I mean, really. And yet, you know what these Christians did? They didn't sit around and think, oh my gosh, the world is so awful. Why don't we all hold hands and sing, I'll fly away, oh glory, and just pray for Jesus to return. No, you know what they did? They served. They served and they loved, and they cared for the sick that no one else would care for, and they cared for the poor, and they were radically committed to each other, and they cared for babies that were discarded. And little by little, the pagan culture around them began to take notice. The pagan culture began to sit up and say, whatever these people got, I don't know what they got, but whatever they have, I want a piece of that. Let me just tell you something. That's what we can do today. Within a generation, within a few hundred years, these Christians went from being just this little marginalized, small, like marginalized segment of the population, and they turned the world upside down. Do you see it? Like, this is the influence we can have through serving, through loving, through being like Jesus. God helps those who cannot help themselves, and he often helps them through his people. And can I just encourage you today, when we do the work that he's called to do, we're able to reveal his love to people who may never step foot in a church like ours. Let me just tell you, one of my favorite things is when I meet people who know our church from serving. Oh, that's the church where, fill in the blank, where you guys did this or that. Oh, you're the church with all the blue shirts who shows up and does this. I love that. I mean, I think, what a great reputation, right? When you ask people what they think about the church, you'll get all kinds of answers. But wouldn't it be wonderful to know that when people think about the church of Jesus Christ, they think of the most loving, generous, compassionate people on the face of the planet. I'd like to be known for that. Oh, we don't know what those redemption people think, you know, over there worshiping in a warehouse loft space. I mean, they they make some loud music, and I don't know what they're drinking in the Kool-Aid over there, but I know something about those people. They show up, and they know how to serve, and they love each other. And there's something that they have that I'm at least, I'm at least, my curiosity is at least peaked. Come on, the, the world's curiosity should at least be peaked by our lives. That's what happens when we serve. It's amazing that God chooses to do his work through us. And can I just encourage you today? Whenever I serve someone, it always blesses me more than it blesses them. You know, so many times we... We think about a serve event, and if you've done, if you've served with us before, you know this is true. Or if you've ever gone on a missions trip, like you kind of, you kind of get excited to think about, I'm going to make a difference in someone's life, and you do. Don't get me wrong, you do, because if you've ever been on the receiving end of being served, it's truly a blessing. I think so many times we think about, we get excited about how God's going to use us to bless someone. But you know what happens when you step out to serve someone? Often you end up being the one who gets more blessed. Jesus said it's more blessed to give. Than to receive. Can I just tell you something that I feel more like Jesus when I have the opportunity to serve someone than anything else I do? 
You might think, oh, well, Pastor, I mean, when you're up there preaching, that's when you're the most like Jesus. No, 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 preaching is a sacred obligation. But I'll tell you, the moments when I feel most humbled, when I feel most like Jesus, is when I have the opportunity to do something like what we're going to do on Serve Day. Can I tell you, last week, when we were at the Jersey Shore, when that lady came up to me and asked me for $3.90, she blessed me. You know why? It was an opportunity for me to be like Jesus in front of my boys. Because here we were blowing money all week long, having fun on vacation. We had to come home. I was running out of money. With three boys on the Jersey Shore. I'm like, Lord, get me out of here. I'm going to have no money. Left. I spent my kids' college savings at the Jersey Shore last week. Hope you enjoy the roller coasters and the water parks, kids. Good luck getting through college. <laughs> but you know what? Here's the reality. And I'm not patting myself on the back because I gave the lady $4. You know, it was an opportunity to show my kids this is what it looks like to be like Jesus. Because I said to my boys, Maybe we were the answers to that lady's prayer. Who knows, maybe she was walking up this block hoping and praying, I'm gonna meet somebody nice. I'm gonna meet somebody who's not judgmental. I'm gonna meet somebody kind. And you know, it's an opportunity for me to say, oh girl, we got you $4, that's no problem. These kids are gonna go spend all my money on the boardwalk. Here you go, how much you need? We can hook you up. And it gave me an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Jesus to my boy. So guess what? This isn't a pat myself on the back moment. Here's what I'm telling you. In serving, guess who ended up being more blessed? Not her, me because she gave me the opportunity to be more like Jesus. And I'm telling you, that's what you'll find when God uses you. And it may be served day, but here's the reality. It's not just about served day. It's about bringing this into our everyday lives. It's about bringing this into our sphere of influence, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, the people around us. It may be somebody that you serve on a team with, stepping up to make them a meal when they're sick. Boy, that's a blessing, isn't it? It may be just sending someone a card, just practical ways to serve someone. Man, you never know how that blesses somebody and how it makes a difference in their lives. This is who we're called to be. This is who we're called to be. Not a bunch of people who say, oh, well, God helps those who help themselves. But no, those who recognize that God is the God who often helps those who cannot help themselves. And he does it through his people. That's what we're called to be. Amen? Come on, why don't you stand with me this morning? We're going to take a moment to pray. You know, when I was in Bible college, we used to sing a song. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. And that phrase just came back to me this morning as I was praying. And maybe that's a really good prayer to pray today. We're not going to sing that song, but it's a, good, it's a good prayer to pray. And can I invite you just to pray that with me this morning? Maybe you want to bow your head today. Maybe you want to just lift your hands as a sign of surrender, lift your hands as a way of saying, God, I'm available to you. I'm available to you. God, if you can use anything, you can use my life. You can use me to bless someone. You can make me a person of compassion. You can make me a person of understanding. You can make me a person who's more loving, more gracious. Come on, my hands are lifted. Jesus, we want to be more like you today. That's our prayer. Father, that's our prayer today. God, we thank you that you are a God of grace. You are a God of mercy. You are a God of love. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us when we least deserved it. You served us when we least deserved it. You served us in the midst of our shame, our sin, our brokenness. Jesus, you entered our story. You brought healing to our lives. You met us with compassion. So God, help us to be those who can enter into someone else's story with humility and love and understanding. God, that we would be those who, who speak up, who are a, a voice for the voices, that we would be those who, who judge fairly, who see people not just in a quick judgment, not just in their outer circumstances, but we look at people and we see them the way you see them, through the eyes of compassion. 
eyes of grace and mercy. God, make us your people. Make us more like you. God, our hands are lifted. Jesus, we want to be more like you. If you can use anything, God, you can use me. You can use me to serve. You can use me to give. You can use me to love. Go ahead, go ahead and love through me, God. Go ahead and serve through me, God. Go ahead and use my life to bless someone else, God, because I recognize that I'm more blessed to give. I'm more blessed to serve someone else. I'm more blessed when your love overflows through me. Father, make us those kind of people and make us that kind of church. Come on, somebody just pray that prayer with me. God, make me that kind of person and make us that kind of church. In Jesus' name, if you believe it, would you say amen? Amen. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. If you'd like to connect with us or learn more about our church, please visit us online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. We hope you can listen or join us next week.